Hello, and welcome back to the Scale-Ups and Hypergrowth podcast. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to have Victoria Boxall-Hunt, who is the Group Operations Director from Markol, which is a private equity group, as my guest. Victoria, welcome. Marcus, thank you very much for having me here. It's my pleasure. Would you mind giving 60 to 90 seconds on your journey, which uh, I know has been exciting to get to where you are? No, no problem at all. So, yeah, well, currently I'm, I'm the uh, Group Operations Director for Markol. I've been with Markol now for, for 15 years. The business has, has changed a lot in that time, and it's been a, a fascinating journey. Prior to that, I think, as, as we were chatting about in uh, just before, before the podcast started, I um, had made a career for myself working for sort of high net worth. Um, there wasn't a lot of sort of strategy behind that from the outset, but it has sort of been where, where my career has, has been. So I have had a very interesting, I think, path in growing and learning over, I'm nearly 50, so I've been working since I was 16. It's been an interesting journey and continues to be so. I have been, sort of, I guess, sort of jack of all trades, master of none, managing to turn my hand to, to a lot of different things. Working for entrepreneurs, high net worth entrepreneurs, I think they... They quite often have the most phenomenal ideas and are brilliant at, at the sort of conceptual and creative side of things, but actually really need people behind the scenes to build the infrastructure for, for them to be able to create and do their, do their magic. And I think that's, that's sort of where I've come in. And now I do everything from sort of the people, the HR, the marketing, events, insurance for all our assets and get involved in sitting at the, at the boardroom table and um, trying to help shape the, the businesses and, and the business we are and, and the direction that we're, we're going to go. Okay, so I think you've just described professional cat herding. Would that be fair? <laughs> Something along the lines of that, yes. <laughs> okay, let me start with this. As a director of operations for a large complex business, when salespeople come to speak to you, what are you ex- hoping they will actually deliver in the time that they're spending with you? And if they do, then you'll invite them back. I think for the most part, and I'm sure I'm not speaking only myself in this, you know, we're, we're very, everybody's very busy. If you've got a solution, if you've got an issue that you need a solution for, you're trying to navigate your course to find the person that can provide that solution. And I think, you know, not, off, not all the time do you know exactly, you know you've got a problem, but you don't necessarily know exactly what that, that solution is. So an opportunity to be heard, for somebody to really understand the problem that's at hand and look for a suitable solution, rather than trying to just sell you what they've got, not listening to what the issue is spending time in understanding where my problem is and helping me navigate and find that solution. I saw some research from KPMG last year that suggests that only six minutes in every hour do CXOs find value when a salesperson is in front of them. And what that suggests to me is lack of preparation and the type of questions that will probably drive someone like you insane will be housekeeping questions that a quick Google search or a search of the website could have taken care of. When 
salespeople, the best salespeople come along, how insightful is their questioning so it helps you to recognize and become aware of the cause of your problem? I think you're absolutely right. And it does infuriate me if you come into a room and, and you're you know, wasting your time or spending your time talking about things that, that could easily have been dealt with beforehand on a phone call or by talking to somebody else in the team or from reading the website, that sort of thing. I think the sense of really developing a relationship. So I think the getting an understanding of the issue, which we, we've talked about, I think you, you pick up a lot about who a person is within a very short amount of time of being in their company. I think having the ability to be able to adapt your sales technique to that person is key. So possibly letting them take the lead or letting me take the lead in what it is that we're, we're looking for and then adapting a style around that. Building a relationship with the person and that real sense of kind of authenticity. And I and you know, I, I had a conversation earlier actually with one of my team about the importance of being true to who you are, not trying to be something that you're not, because I think that comes across so clearly. And if you're unsure of your topic or you're unsure in a situation, that's what the other person is left feeling. So I think being in an environment that spending time working out who the person is that you're going to be meeting with and adapting your style when, when you're with them. And I've got a couple of scenarios that come to mind. I do a lot of recruitment across the group. And I think recruitment consultants don't, for the most part, have a, a fantastic reputation <laughs> because there's a lot of hard selling in that game. The number of whether it's LinkedIn requests or phone calls or emails I get, when they haven't even considered the type of company we are, they expect me to give them, you know, 10, 15 minutes of my time and they've done no work behind the scenes. And then, you know, you come across the odd gem. And now after, you know, being with the business for 15 years, we've got probably five or six either search firms or recruitment companies that we work with that just get it right. They spend the time developing a relationship. They listen to what we're after. They see how we're evolving. They talk to people within the business that they've recruited to the business. So they understand their path of of evolution in, in the company. And they savor or they save that communication with me until they've actually got something that's really worthwhile saying. And, you know, I've then become their biggest advocate and I will recommend them to all and sundry because they have, you know, really taken the time to understand me, understand my needs, understand who I am and how I like to work. And that partnership then is, is, is one that will stand the test of time. So you've touched on something that's really key here, which is you develop a partnership with your customers. And I think far too many salespeople are so focused and fixated on the transaction, on the now. They don't play the long game. They don't listen. They don't ask great, insightful questions. And the net result of that is, and they just blend into the mismatch of all the other average experiences that people have dealing with salespeople. So if you think about the absolutely the best experiences that you've had when you've been a buyer and you're effectively talent spotting 
Because I think to a large degree, that's the, the role of C-suite executives in their field. When you're talent spotting, what are the qualities, the personal quality that you're looking for from salespeople? You mentioned authenticity. What else? Yeah, I was going to say, that's, that's what it comes down to for me, is that liking the person sound, sounds wrong, but I think it's feeling as though it's somebody that you can work with, that sense of authenticity in what they're saying and who they are and not, not trying to kind of blindside you. A comfort in their own skin and in what they're saying and how they're saying it. A healthy level of, of self-confidence but without being, without being arrogant. And somebody who is as willing to listen as they are to speak. Interesting. One of my observations is that where the prospect doesn't experience or derive value, the conversation quickly descends into a conversation around cost and price. And that's normally a mechanism to get them out of the office quickly. How do you suggest that managers of salespeople educate and train them in order to ensure that they are engaging with prospects where they are? They're thinking as the customer instead of thinking about the customer and what they can sell to them. What do you think needs to change for that to be possible? Interestingly, I think that's possibly kind of leading us into a kind of much broader topic because I think the whole world of work is, is, is really changing. And I think, you know, this whole sort of pandemic and lockdown scenario is, is really accelerating that because I think we're not going to be doing things in, in the same way as we have ever, ever again. I think it is, gosh, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. I think the, from a sales manager perspective, I mean, I think when, if I, again, relate it to recruiters, I really feel like the days of that just kind of sort of pounding the phones is so long gone. Um, And the expectation, there's so much data out there and there's so much information out there. It's really using that to your advantage in really understanding any prospect. One of the things that really comes to mind is, you know, sort of dedicating an hour to to a meeting where you're going to you're meeting the salespeople for the first time, is that sort of 45 minutes of why you should buy from that person or that company right up, up front. And, you know, the majority of the meeting being all about them and their product rather than actually what you need. And I think, you know, turning that model completely on its head, actually what you go into that meeting for is understanding price, understanding timeline, understanding whether there's a there's a fit there get all of that out straight away don't hide behind what your customer testimonials are or how fabulous your product is in your eyes i think getting to the point and being okay so this is what you know this is the price this is the time frame and this is the problem that we're solving i think that whole environment of trying to sell too hard we don't have time for that now. Nobody has time for that now. So really understanding what are the key three or four things that need to be gotten on the table in the first five minutes. You might have the, the kind of first sort of introductory piece, but then getting that out there. It's like going to the, 
we put a pack on the table and, and I can guarantee it with, with, our, with our chairman, he will go straight to the back and look at the price. It is turning it on its head. It's coming in with the details that the client is looking or the customer is looking for from the outset, in my opinion. So I do think- Mind if I challenge you on that? No, of course, challenge away. I absolutely agree with you that you shouldn't be talking about you, your company, who your investors are, what your products are, because no one cares. That's the equivalent of showing photos of your ugly children to strangers. And the key thing, I think, is to- diagnose is there a fit and you know can you help if you can help are you the right people to help if you can't then it's your obligation to suggest you know let's end this and maybe I can recommend someone else if we get straight to the subject of price then one of the dangers with that is if it doesn't appear on a line item on a budget then you're not going to have the conversation go much further so one of the things that I've recognized after, I don't know, 35 years selling, I'm a slow learner, is that the challenge here is to control the sales process, but let the buyer buy instead of be sold. And that is a diagnosis process. And I think what you've hit the nail right on the head with is that there's a a medical maxim which I'm flipping, which is prescription before diagnosis is malpractice. And the problem is, if you lead with your company and your product, it's prescriptive. And your job is to diagnose. Is there a way that we can help? Do I actually understand the real problem? Because very often people are very painfully aware of the symptoms. And they also know what nirvana looks like. But they don't necessarily understand the cause. And that's the, what the salesperson has to diagnose because otherwise you're not really bringing anything of any significant value. You're just behaving like a commodity provider. If you're just coming back and saying, look, Victoria, as I understand it, you guys have symptoms, symptoms, symptoms. We fix that kind of stuff. So if the salesperson falls into the trap of presenting too soon, whether they're talking about the company, their product, or their solution, they're not really diagnosing. What they're doing is they're, they're trying to generate a transaction. And it, certainly dealing with a company like yours, with high-ticket services, I can't believe for a second that if you start leading with price, very, or you enter into the price conversation very early, that it won't descend into a three-way bid and then you get caught in the RFP trap. How would you suggest people engage so that they're really delivering value? So the subject of money comes up at an appropriate time. Again, probably less product and, and more people from a, from a sort of acquisition perspective. But I think I know, I think it's highly unlikely that I would go into a meeting without some sort of ballpark understanding of the, of the cost of, of acquisition. and. For me, it really is a very important part of the process. And I think that, as it is for anybody, I'm not, I'm not saying that, but it isn't. But I think the understanding, and, may, and may, maybe it is defining that the average cost for our product is X, but I'm going to be able to define the pricing of that once I know a little bit more about your needs. And then we can be able, you know, we're able to get into, into the nitty gritty of what the, what the costs are. But just from the outset, an average price is this, 
an average time frame as this. And, you know, we've worked with the majority of our customers for 20 years, which says to me, okay, I understand the ballpark of what the cost is. I understand the ballpark of the implementation of that. And it's great to know that actually you have kept, you know, the majority of your customers over a long period of time because then I know that you're servicing them well. So I think for me that sets the, sets the groundwork to then build on. Okay. What if it's something that you've never bought before? I think I would still work reasonably hard in, in, you know, in the background in understanding what it is that, that we're acquiring and why we need it. And then I'd be talking to people. Quite often, I'll do references on on the company before I would invite them in to to talk uh, to meet us. You know, we've got sort of the nature of, of of the type of business we're in. We've got a lot of specialists and you know a, a fantastic and very experienced senior team. There'll be somebody on there that's got some sort of experience, and quite often with what it is we're we're looking for. And we might even be able to use something that one of our portfolio businesses have done, particularly from a tech side. And I and I don't I don't get um, particularly involved in in the portfolio businesses and their their technology. But you know we've got a fantastic CTO, um, excellent head of our our IT business, which we've got a separate business, who have both got a huge amount of experience. And I will quite often float an issue with them. And they'll potentially introduce me to somebody that's faced something similar. You know, we'll do quite a lot of work in the background to kind of navigate whatever the issue is and come up with what we think might the solution might be and then invite people in to try and solve it. So, Victoria, you talked about how the world of work is changing. And what I'm really curious about is not only that post-COVID we're really going to have to try and find new and different ways of working. I think the McKinsey reports that 74% of companies are now looking at transitioning to more people working from home on a regular basis, if not permanently. And I think it was 94% or 98% of employees want the option of being able to work from home. What I'm curious about is how management has to adapt where they no longer have people right on you know, in the same office, and how they need to modify their approach. Because uh, one of the areas that I see, certainly within sales, is that sales managers are some of the most undertrained people. And they've often just been tapped on the shoulder and told, congratulations, you are one. And they do what they th- think is management, but actually they spend a lot of time showing people how they can be the hero and not really developing their people. Now, remotely, this is going to become really critical because they don't have that supervisory direct control. So how do you see management changing its outlook? Yeah, I think there are two points there, which I think I always, and I think you're you're absolutely hit the the nail on the head. I think, and I've seen it so many times in years now of having reasonably long tenures with with the businesses that I've worked for is that you see somebody who is just a bloody good salesperson and has great relationships suddenly become a sales manager where you take them off the front line they've got no clue how to manage a team and you've just taken your best salesperson off the desk double whammy what are you doing and actually then that person doesn't have time to sort of (laughs) service in the best possible use of the word, the clients that they've developed over the years. And you think, 
what are you doing? It's just total madness. Player managers almost never work out. And that's one of the worst things that I see companies do because they think it's an economy. It isn't. You lose your best salesperson. You gain an atrocious manager who manages not to develop their people. And under pressure, they'll focus their attention on hitting their own personal production target. So they'll leave their people to sink or swim. And that almost never works out. So you have to be... And they also end up not earning as much money managing people, doing a job they're not very good at, which I think, yeah, no, so that's a bad, bad idea. One interesting thing, actually, I was contemplating this morning was the, I think, by the nature of sales, the sales environment, quite often the sales team is working remotely anyway because they're quite often on site at clients etc etc so I think the sales is one area of the business where actually they are used to working in in a more independent remote way because quite often they are spread around the country and they're doing different things they're not all together all the time so I think in some ways yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah true 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 the bad ones Um, are sat in the office staring at the phone aggressively praying it will ring yeah, okay, that, 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 that's fair. Um, but yeah, so that, that was sort of one area I was thinking about which teams are going to respond well to, to this new environment. And I had, I had thought that about the sales teams and the fact that, you know, possibly one of the models that we'd be considering is if everybody is working more remotely, how do you bring your teams together when the environment is healthy and safe to do so? But how do you bring your teams together and what will that look like? And I think the, the likelihood is, and, and again, having read a, a Deloitte report and a Cushman and Wakefield report, I think we'll begin to see more sort of regional hubs where there'll be a sort of Airbnb but work style where you sort of say, okay, you're here, you're here, you're here, you're here. We'll choose somewhere here. We'll find something there that's got train station, um, easy road trans, you know, road connections, decent catering, and, and we'll take it for the day and we'll all get together and that's where we'll, we'll collaborate. Because I think the workspace is going to become much more a collaboration space than it is a, a dedicated space for working. I think that in itself will, will be interesting. I think one of the key things for managers and the board level or the C-suite to really consider is how you keep a company culture that has been so centered on the physical environment and how you really take your culture and your values and how you how they work in a more remote environment which I think is going to be a challenge for for a lot of businesses and I think the purpose piece and the values piece is was getting far more important anyway I think the younger generations coming into work are really looking for purpose-led businesses and they want their values to align with the businesses that they're, they're joining. I mean, I think everybody who is coming out of university now wants to have their own business, ultimately, and they want to work for themselves. And any business that they're going into from university, for the most part, they're going in to hone their own skills to be able to take them into their own business and their own environment in, in, in years to come. But I think the that ability to be able to create a culture and an environment that really is a sticky environment that people want to be in 
is going to going to be challenging. And I think you know the way that we will do that is is by aligning those values and creating an environment that has the flexibility to be whatever the individual needs it to be. The type A personality might require the ability to be able to perform. That'll be on a you know Teams or Zoom or, or whatever. But then you know the quieter characters that still need their or still want to get their points across will respond in a in a different way and we need to be we need to create businesses where there's diversity and that the everybody has a voice at that table i think you've touched on a number of really important points which are worth restating the millennial and whatever the next generation is and the noughties they value education and coaching. They value collaboration. They want to challenge the status quo. And they're very driven. They have purpose. And the purpose has to be bigger than themselves. And not everybody, obviously. But again, the generation has been taught that. And I think what's really important as well is to understand that they are not driven by extrinsic motivators, which are not motivators. They're bribes. Um, or threats, and perhaps you can beat them with carrot as well. They're looking for the intrinsic motivations. What do they love about the company? What do they love about the people they work with? What can they master in their role? What do they love about with uh, their customers? And what I've seen in a number of the companies that are really getting this right is their compensation is allows them choice to do more of what they want HubSpot, for example, is a great company when you uh, look at the unlimited holiday. As much as you want. If you're hitting your number and you're washing your face, you can take off seven months a year. And I think that's really interesting. And you, you talk about diversity and inclusion. And I, I interviewed a really fascinating chap, Roderick Jefferson, who is absolutely the pinnacle when it comes to sales enablement. And he made a really interesting definition. So diversity is being able to have a seat at the table. Inclusion is being able to order from the menu. And I think what is required, because I, I see so much intrinsic bias and uh, lack of diversity, particularly in leadership. Women in leadership positions are still far too few. Uh, Non-white leaders investment in private equity and venture capital last year was the highest level of private equity investment in women businesses and they constitute women-owned businesses and they constitute three percent of the total investment pile or total investment globally black owned companies one percent latino owned companies one and a half percent that to me strikes me as a massive waste of resource when that's probably 85% of the talent, uh, possibly more, that's being missed out. So what's happening in the private equity space to move towards a more pragmatic approach to inclusion and diversity? Yeah, I mean, I think you're seeing now, you know, a number of business or quite a number of business assessment houses that are only investing in female-led businesses, etc. And, you know, I think it's, so the numbers are at least moving in the right direction. 
there is a huge amount more to do. I think it's in the environment that we're now working in, which is very different to the environment that we were working in even two and three years ago. I do think the ability to work more flexibly, the ability to be able to work from home, that it will give women a better opportunity at progressing in their careers. And I think, you know, I was listening to to something interesting the other day about with the schools not being back in, the and men working from home and women being at home, that there's much more sharing of the domestic duties currently. I think it'll be be interesting to see how how that manifests itself over the course of, of the next little while. Because I think there's a lot of lots of people that have different relationships with their kids now because they're seeing them Monday to Friday rather than just on weekends. I think that there's been a big boost to, for the most part, I know there's a lot of people that it hasn't been a great experience for. And I, you know, I say that with all, all due respect. But I think a lot of people have actually really enjoyed the time at home and having the ability to be able to spend more time with their families. You know, anybody that's got kids and you're doing the homeschooling, working juggle, it's it's really, really difficult. And I'm seeing it with a number of people in in our teams that, you know, they're they're one of one's getting up at sort of five o'clock in the morning and working till eleven and then, you know, there's a there's a bit of a handover and then the other one's working from sort of twelve till eight or whatever it is. But they're they're managing it and they're and they're navigating navigating that course. I think interestingly over the next you know I think the health and well-being sector is huge and I think it does the touching on what um, the millennials and the snowflakes and the noughties and the expectations of businesses to to flex to the needs of these um, of, of the next wave of, of, of leaders coming into our businesses and their expectations of how how businesses will will need to change. The health and well-being space, I think, it is the growth in that space over the last couple of years has has been immense, and I think we're going to continue to see that. There's a lot of female-led businesses within that space, and I think we will see a lot more investment in those businesses because I think the mental health conversation is is so important and is much more at the forefront now. It's not something that's sort of hidden away in the back room. So I think we'll we'll see a lot more a lot more in that space. I think one of the interesting things with regard to the use of technology over, over COVID and the ability to be able to administer treatment over Zoom, you know, talking therapies and those sorts of things, I think um, we'll, we'll see a huge, huge amount more. And that the Gwyneth Paltrow and what she's doing with Goop and, and fantastic um, female-led businesses like Dose and, and, and the like are are coming into the forefront and that you know the discussion around meditation and mindfulness and a really good balance between your home and work life and creating creating that kind of the the equilibrium there of, of being able to really find that right balance between being a mother a father a sister a brother an aunt a, a worker or whatever you know we are all a product of our of our lives and everything that that's thrown at us and it's not just this is what I do at work and this is what I do at home we're a blend of all of that and I guess it comes down again to that sort of authenticity piece where you know if you bring your real self to the table not necessarily warts and all but that sense of 
you are dealing with the real person here. I'm not pretending to be on something I'm not, but there's a real authenticity to the person that you're dealing with in the environment that you're with. Gosh, I, I think I, I went completely around the houses there. I think you've touched on a couple of really important points as well. The separation between your identity, who you are, and your role functions, whether it's uh, mother or father, spouse, or a recruiter, a group operations director, or a janitor. It doesn't make any difference. Those are all role functions. You need to be able to separate the two. And I think part of the problem intrinsically through the traditional way of work is you describe yourself as a recruitment consultant. You describe yourself as a salesperson, as an engineer. And if you cannot separate the two, then what tends to happen is you get this bleed going on where if you have a bad day at work, you start to doubt yourself and you have this inner narrative that says, you idiot, you fool, you messed up, and so on. And I think one of the things, coming back to my earlier question around how managers need to evolve, I think is um, helping their people to be able to separate work from their home life uh, because I know that certainly in the first couple of months, there was a 20% increase in production on average with people working from home. Because you walk past your PC or laptop and you think, oh, well, let me just have a look at the, the emails. And you're seeing people working a lot harder, interestingly enough. And I, I think what managers really need to do is be able to counsel their people and train them to be able to separate those two and create clear I, yeah. I'd, I'd like to challenge that I don't know that it's necessarily separating the two I think if you mean one of the things that that we've done over lockdown and will continue to do is a lot of a lot of surveys and talking to to our teams and understanding what's important to them and you know really giving them giving them a voice so there's the importance of being able to know that your working day is going to end because actually it's a very intense environment working via video. Um, you know, we probably, you know, as much as we're saving our commute time, that's now spent at the desk. Um, so I completely agree that having a dedicated workspace, and that's another whole debate because I think that's going to be something that businesses really need to spend time investing in and working with their employees on, on creating an environment for them, well, not for them, but with them in, in their homes to enable them to really work productively from, from home. I think, you know, my husband's got a shed at the end of the garden, which is his, his working space and his man cave. And, and for him, you know, that's an environment that works very well for, for him working from home. I'm working in the sitting room, which, which works well for me. But it is an environment that is dedicated to work and I think that is really important and it is important to get up from your desk during the day it's important to go and get some fresh air it's important to you know in the same way as you would in the office if you're nipping out or you're going to a meeting that you're you know you walk to the local coffee shop if it's open or you you know you walk around the block and you and you give yourself a bit of a a step change between meetings or between you know different tasks during your day so I completely agree with that People buy from people that they like. People are do, like doing business with people that they like. And I think having an understanding of who that person is and the environment that they're living and working in. And, you know, one, one of the guys that I was working with the other day called it a pitch invasion when one of my children came to bring me the post that had come in. He's like, oh, pitch invasion, pitch invasion. <laughs> No, they live here too. You know, and, and they were kindly, you know, bringing me the post that had come, come through the door. 
and they're intrigued by, you know, who are you talking to and what was that meeting about? You know, they're really interested, the kids I'm talking yeah. about, are in, in the life that we're, we're living online. Um, and I think the thing that I think is, is key is the toolkit that managers help and prepare and share with their teams on, you know, if you have had a bad day, you know, or, or a bad night, you've got small children, you've been up all night, what are the things that you need to do to manage your environment to get the best out of that? If you have only had an hour's sleep, it's probably better not to attempt a big pitch meeting. It's probably better to ring and be honest and open with everybody to say, I've got an issue. I'm not going to be my, you know, my best version of me today because X has happened. Please, could we re rearrange the meeting or is there somebody else that uh, are you losing? You, you've, t- you've touched on something really critical. I firmly believe that most people see vulnerability as a weakness and a personality defect. It is the most courageous place to be. It is honestly the most courageous place to be. I think showing that vulnerability, you know, we all have that voice inside our head that says we're not good enough. We should have done more. We should have done this. We should have done that. I think to be vulnerable is to be courageous. So tell me this, because I think one of the areas that I see a huge deficiency, certainly in the sales environment, the best ones do a lot of this, but the average and the worst don't, which is coaching. And I I fundamentally believe that managers are not trained how to coach. They're not held to account for their coaching. And where we see managers in sales give three to three and a half hours coaching per month per rep, they have an average quota attainment of 105%, where it's below three hours, they have an average quota attainment of 40 to 60%. Now, what's your advice to leaders who are looking at their balance sheet and they're saying we need to cut costs in training, we need to reduce our headcount? What's your advice to them about coaching and making that investment? Just to go back to where I was a minute ago with regard to this of showing up as the best version of yourself, what I was going to go on to say was, you know, what we all need to do, whether you're in sales or any other type of, of role, is develop a toolkit that you know is the, is the toolkit that works for you. And I think it's so simple, but so incredibly important. The good night's rest, good food, exercise, you know, meditation, they're there for me, they are absolutely key. And then great relationships fill up the tank. They help you be the best version of you that you can be. But I think the the toolkit that has the ability to be able to, you know, when when those voices are coming in that says I that say I'm not good enough and, and I should have done that differently and blah, 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 it's the ability to be able to step away, take a few deep breaths, your own mantra, your own whatever it might be, that you know, remind yourself of the great things that you've done and what you've contributed and the deals that you've done when you've done them brilliantly. Fuel yourself up and then go back into to whatever it is you're trying to achieve. Because if you try and achieve something from a place of I'm not good enough, I'm not feeling prepared enough, I'm not rested enough, I'm not this, I'm not that. That is exactly what you've got written on your forehead when you go into a meeting. And that is not going to help anybody. 
to go in that sort of both hands tied behind your back and a blindfold on. There's a wonderful <laughs> book by the author Randy J. Patterson called How to Be Miserable, 40 Strategies You're Probably Already Using. That for, if you have that in, inner monologue that's giving you grief, absolutely a must read. Tell me this, what are you being influenced by? What are you reading, watching, listening to that is really impressing you at the moment? I love a podcast. So my, my favourite current podcast is called The Broken Brain. Ooh. And it is absolutely fascinating. So it's, it's all around sort of health and well-being and, and how our brains are not broken. But so much of what we do is not good for you know, the environment or the, the way we live our lives, from processed foods to the amount of alcohol we drink, the, the fact that you know, the environment of, I only need three hours sleep a night, you know, I'm, I, can, I can run the world, chronic disease, the unhealthy way in which we, we for the most part, are, are living our lives, and how technology is meant to help aid us, but actually all it does is, is really create another thing that we have to have to do so the broken brain is one um feel better live more is another one that um i i'm absolutely loving the harvard business review i think is uh, is, a, is a fantastic read and, and and i try and try and read that most uh, months and then you know i read all sorts of all sorts of interesting books i'm the one i'm uh, reading at the moment is called the one thing marcus buckingham Marcus Buckingham, yeah. Fabulous. I start, started that this morning, so don't really ask me too fabulous much about book. it. Have you seen the Gallup research that came off the back of that and the StrengthsFinder profile that they used? The, I the, haven't, but I've, I've had it referenced before, so I'm aware of it, but I haven't, I haven't seen it. Fabulous. Speak to Nick, because he's got one. So you've got a golden ticket, and you can go and whisper in the ear of the idiot Victoria, age 23. What advice would you whisper to her? Trust in the journey. Interesting. Tell me more. I think we all spend so much time either worrying about the past or worrying about the future. And I think it's so important to live in the present. And I think I will write a book one day and that will be the title of it. I cannot tell. It was a piece of advice that was given to me. And it was the most golden piece of advice that I've ever been given because there are times in life where you think, what am I meant to learn? What the heck is all this about? But most of the time, at those, at those points in the journey are the, the ability to learn and build and grow and make the deepest, most meaningful relationships. And I just think if we could all just enjoy the journey that bit more rather than constantly worrying about what's happened and what's going to happen, I think the world would be a much, much happier place. I think, Fabulous. you know, we all see so, you know, and I, and I see it with, with people that I, that I work closely with, that it's constantly, what's next, what's next, what's next? And you think, we've just had an amazing win here. Let's just, for a minute, <laughs> not take our foot off the gas, not keep our, you know, take our eye off the end goal, but let's just, for a minute, celebrate this success and celebrate these people and really take a moment to, to acknowledge what's been achieved here. It is always so much about where we're going and where we've come from, and so little joy spent in the moment of what is now. 
Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. There are two models in transaction analysis. You have the drama triangle, and the drama triangle is typically lived by people who are stuck in the past or worrying about the future. And you have the winner's triangle, which is really all about being fully present. And the three positions of the winner's triangle are vulnerable, nurturing, empathic, and assertive. Whereas the drama triangle is victim, persecutor, and rescuer. And the challenge with being stuck in the drama triangle is it's an environment which is fraught with blame, excuses, justification, uh, defensiveness, uh, aggression, hostility, uh, judgment. Whereas if you're fully present, none of that exists. And you can enjoy the moment. You've got to show up and be fully present. Because if you're not, when you're selling, when you're managing, and you're distracted, you're not giving 100% of your attention to the person that you're speaking to. And I think this brings us nicely full circle in terms of you cannot be authentic unless you are fully present. Absolutely. And I, you know, I see it with, with the kids. My children are seven and seven and nine. You can begin to see the nine-year-old now being much more concerned about what's going to happen when this happens and you know looking forward in a different way. Whereas the seven-year-old is so spectacular spectacularly living in the moment you know whether it's following an ant that happens to be walking across the patio or whatever it is there's just this absolute utter joy of being in the moment and I you know I appreciate that there's a lot of responsibility that comes with with age and time and, and responsibility etc cetera, etc cetera. but just so wonderful to to find that joy of the journey and of the moment. Well, to build on that, I think as a seller, if you don't have, if you don't possess that kind of childlike curiosity, the odds are you're not going to be a particularly good salesperson because you'll have heard the same story time and time again from customers and prospects. But you have to have that curiosity about what is it that drives this person? Where are they now? What are they trying to achieve? And you have to have those questions constantly buzzing through your mind. Tell me this. What are you struggling with at the moment? What are you wrestling with? Finding enough white space to really think strategically. Interesting. Do you time block your calendar? Yes. Does it always work? No. <laughs> That's the thing that I, you know, I think, again, with, you know, I think in this current environment when we are, you know, you've got your business as usual, you've got your sort of COVID crisis, and then you've got your future piece that we're working, working hard on. There's a huge amount to, to do in that. But I think I was, re- I was reading something, something the other day about the, I think Tim Ferriss did the, the four-hour working day. And then the, um, there's a lot not being, uh, there's an article in the Harvard Business Review not that long ago about the, the four-day working week and being as active in rest on the fifth day as you would be active at work on, the, on days one to four. Because you know, I think we see a lot of our leaders who are also, you know, triathlon runners and, and marathon runners and climbers and skiers, and that's their time out, which is spent very actively. But it, it's also a time where there's a huge amount of creativity. 
And I think finding finding that white space to be creative and strategic, I think is is something else that, you know, going back to your point about the kind of the future place of work, I think the collaboration piece, creativity and strategy development piece will be done differently going going forward. And I know whether it's while I'm running or exercising in, in some way, shape or form, that's quite often when ideas will come to me. And I think, you know, having that learner's mindset and that wish to keep driving things forward doesn't necessarily come when you block out in creation. That, that makes any sense whatsoever. Absolutely. Well, there's a fabulous book called The Road Less Stupid by Keith Cunningham. And a fabulous title, but he's got one fabulous piece of advice, which is find yourself a space and a blank pad with a pen and one question and take 45 minutes and simply come up with ideas to address that question and make it something neaty and pithy. And in I don't know if you can see that. Can you see that? <laughs> Those are my questions, which I ponder while I'm journaling. <laughs> so I do that, which I just I think, brilliant. So uh, absolutely, and journaling is another activity that I see really successful people do on a regular basis because it's a catharsis, it's a fabulous tool. Excellent. Victoria, thank you so much. This has been really insightful and an absolute delight. Tell me, how can people get hold of you? Would you prefer that they didn't? <laughs> um, I think probably for this environment, LinkedIn is the is, the, is probably the best one. Excellent. So if you want to get hold of Victoria, Victoria Boxall Hunt, and uh, just check her out on LinkedIn. Victoria, thank you so much. Been an absolute pleasure. You are very, very welcome. Um, it was a pleasure talking to you. I think we could talk for, for hours to come. I thoroughly enjoyed it. So thank well, you. I, I hope so, and I'd, I'd love to have you back. Absolutely. I'd love to do that. This is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Scale-Ups and Hypergrowth podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then please get in touch. Email me at marcuskauke at me.com or m-c-a-u-c-h-i at sandler.com. And if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone who would be, then please put us in touch and I'll endeavor to get them on as a guest. In the meantime, happy selling and stay safe. Bye-bye.